1 Corinthians chapter 13. I think I told you that after this, uh, we'll go into the book of Philippians and spend uh, some time there and just work straight through that book. But uh, this morning is a second uh, of a series on 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, the, the chapter on love. We talked about last week how, how Paul envisions love like a like a, like a band, and even if you, you think you're the technically greatest player of all time, if you don't have love, uh, your music is not going to sound good. That's kind of his analogy there. And so that we talked last week about the primacy, the importance of love. This week we're going to talk about this concept, what is love, which I feel like is a, um, is a culturally... Uh, famous question, right, that's out there in our culture. I think that most of our, our music, our arts, all those kinds of things are dedicated to answering that question. For some reason, the song, What is Love, uh, kept going through my mind as I, uh, as I prepared for this. Um, I don't think it has grand bearing, but the, the, I just kept thinking, what is love, baby, don't hurt me, uh, over and over and over again. Uh, but the question is, what is love? Um, it, when, you, when you search that out from a cultural perspective, you can ask a lot of people. I think some of the funniest people to ask are uh, our, our kids. And so this is what kids answered. Uh, how do you know what love is? How do you know if you are in love? How do you know about love? Uh, Christine, age nine, said this, Christine, uh, if it's, lo- it's love, if they order one of those desserts that's on fire. They like to order those because it's just like how their hearts are on fire. John, age nine, said, see if the man picks up the check. That's how you can tell if it's love. Uh, Craig said, many daters just eat pork chops and french fries and talk about love. Um, I like where Craig's going with that, to be honest. Uh, Manuel, age age eight, speaking about love, uh, said he he was talking about how to to get into a loving situation. He said, yell out that you love them at the top of your lungs, and don't worry if their parents are right there. Uh, Alonzo, age nine, said, don't do things like have smelly green sneakers. You might get attention, but attention ain't the same thing as love. Uh, Carl, age five, said, love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne, and they go out and smell each other. Uh, uh, Arnold, age 10, said, they act mushy, like puppy dogs, except puppy dogs don't wag their tails nearly as much. That's from Arnold. Uh, here's the question, though. What, uh, what is, is love? And so, luckily, we have the Bible to define it for us. Luckily, we have the, the Word of God to tell us what exactly love is. Um, Frankly, though, though some of the children hit on, on, on some helpful dating advice, perhaps, I don't think that they exactly get to the heart of love. And I'm going to suggest that our culture, for all of its songs about love, for all of its conceptions of love, for all of its movies about love, doesn't get to the bottom of it either. And so let's just jump for a moment into the verses. Verse 4 in chapter 13 says this, Love is patient. Love is kind, love does not envy, it is not boastful, it is not arrogant, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable, does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This, uh, this definition uh, that Paul is going to give to the church at Corinth of love is significantly different, I think, than how most of us would describe and answer the question on love. One of the reasons is in our culture, uh, our biggest category for love is exclusively romantic. Uh, we, 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 um, we think of love in terms of Hollywood movies. Uh, we think of terms, uh, love in terms of... Uh, uh, of of what happens on on TV, we know this that in even in in almost every movie that that's made in in our culture, from Disney movies to Marvel uh, superhero movies, meaning Disney TV shows for little kids to to Marvel uh, superhero movies, that they always add in a love interest or a love scene. Our culture loves to to pursue the. The, the concept or loves to, to binge, at least, on the concept of what love is. So even 
this this morning uh, a Disney show was on. I assume this Disney show was made for um, for for preteens, kids in kind of that eight, nine, ten, eleven uh, age group. And one of the one of the key themes, as you watched it, was about a boyfriend and about this concept of of love. Uh, the same is true when you're watching a superhero movie. Uh, I don't feel like a superhero movie needs uh, a love interest. Um, I am fine with. Uh, with Iron Man and others just blowing stuff up. But if you watch a, a superhero movie, you will notice that that often appears a love story. So our, our culture is imbibing or searching or looking for, for love. Uh, you will hear people say things like, oh, I just need a, a boyfriend or I just want to fall in love. I just want... And so our culture is very much obsessed with this idea of, of love, even though it's limited very much to, to the... Um, to the arena or the area simply of, of romantic love often. Um, I, I say that to say this, is that I'm thankful that we have a biblical definition of what love is because I think it's corrective to what culture has, has told us, what culture suggests to us, and it's, it's helpful. So um, I would say just before we kind of dive into the middle of, of the love definition, I'd say just one thing is that this this accounting of love, this talking about love here in, in Scripture, I am reminded that to love seems to be the center um, or the, the, the central way in which those who are followers of Christ demonstrate and live out their following of, of Jesus. Um, Paul puts it right here. Remember, we talked about last week. This is in the midst. This chapter appears as a sandwich between two deep theological arguments, theological discussions. It's written to the church at Corinth that had all kinds of issues, all kinds of problems, all kinds of things that they did that were sort of screwed up. Into the middle of that, Paul begins to talk about love. And the reason why is this is that love is central to the reality, it is central to the action, it is, is central to the activity, it is central to everything that it means to be a follower of, of Jesus. And, and one of the unfortunate things, I think, in our own time and our, in our own generation is that we may have forgotten just how central this concept of loving one another is. We have forgotten how many times the command to love appears in, in Scripture. We, we, are, we are influenced by our culture, which talks to us about romantic love. We are influenced by our culture, which talks to us about love uh, as though it were, uh, were an ushy, gushy feeling. If it were, we are influenced by all of those things, and we have forgotten that the command to love is central to what it means to follow Jesus, and to, to, to live out love is central to what it is to be uh, uh, a, a Christian. And so it, it is unfortunate that we have forgotten that. I think it's been forgotten even in the church. I'll come back, back to why on that in a minute. But let's Let's define love because I think that'll be helpful. Paul begins with this by simply saying love is, is patient. Um, sometimes when you read words in, in, in Scripture, uh, they're, they're convicting, and, and uh, we try and ignore how convicting they are, and they reveal to us exactly what we believe about Scripture. This is often one of those for me. I am not naturally uh, a patient uh, person. Sometimes I would, would say or verbalize to, to my children, to others, you know me, I'm not patient. I've asked you to, to do this. And so it is convicting that the first description of love is as, as patient. Um, I would just make this note that, that while I think the concept of patience that I was just talking about is going to be covered elsewhere, this use of the word patience almost means something more like this. When you love you do not just blurt things out impetuously. That's kind of what this term patient means. I don't know if you've ever been in, in uh, a relationship with someone, and I don't mean romantic. I mean, you have a friend, you've been in a church relationship, you've been in a work relationship with someone, and, and, and some piece of, of truth comes across your mind, something that you feel like needs to be said, you feel like it's, it's important, and it weighs upon you, and so you just can't hold that in, so you just have to say it, right? Um, we have this problem sometimes with, with uh, my children. They will say something, and they will get in trouble for what they've said, and then they will say, but it's the truth. And what we like to remind them is this, is that the Bible elsewhere says to speak the truth in love, not just to speak the truth. 
I think that this patient here uh, emphasizes the same kind of idea. It is, it is appropriate often for us to speak truthful things into one another's lives. It's appropriate for us to say things. It's appropriate for us to deal with things and speak them through. But Paul says, love is just, love is patient. And the idea here is that it just doesn't speak out impetuously. It doesn't just blurt out the first thing that comes to mind. It doesn't just say the first thing that, that, that happens. And that is, that is difficult on several levels if you're, if you're, um, if you're a human who doesn't like things holding over your head, say you're in relational conflict and you feel like something needs to be said and, it need, and you, you need to deal with it, it is hard to, to, to wait for the right time to speak those things. But Paul wants to remind them, you can't just blurt out the first thing that comes uh, to mind. That seldom goes well. Love, uh, building on that, so love just doesn't blurt out impetuously. Love is kind, the word kindness in, in our culture um, tends to evoke, I think, uh, pictures of, of, of kind grandfathers and kitties, which is, it has that sort of feel, but there is a deeper, uh, there is a deeper, more, more, um, Uh, maybe a chunkier, that's not the right word, but I'm going to use it anyways. Meaning to the word kindness and the way it was used in the time of, uh, of Scripture. In other words, this is not just saying to, to, to act uh, like a grandfatherly or, or like a kitty, but rather kindness is a genuine sort of, sort of affection and a genuine demonstration uh, of, of, of goodwill towards a, a, another person. Uh, and so love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy. These, all of these, as they build, they become more and more difficult, and they're going to get to a point. Envy means what you, you think it means. Envy, you would not think it does, but envy comes into our interpersonal relationships, both in the church, outside the church, in our homes, all the time. Right? Uh, in, in, a, in a marital relationship, it could be about uh, division of, of, of work, division of chores. Uh, you may feel like the other person has a job that they enjoy more. You don't like your, yours as much. You might feel that, that uh, things are going better for them. You might even start to envy uh, the way that they, um, they process and the way they do things. So it could be in the home life. It could be in a, in a work life. It could be in a friendship life. It is difficult in friendships when you watch others and specifically you watch them perhaps have, have gifts that you wish that you had, that you watch them have things happen for them that you wish would have happened to you. And it can be difficult at times not to be envious of them, but love is not. Love is not boastful. It does not uh, 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 spend its time. We talked about this last week, about the concept of, of, of humility and the concept of, of when we're, we're loving, we don't, we, we don't speak out in, in arrogant sort of ways, which is the next one. It's not boastful, uh, meaning that we need to, this goes back to being blurting out, sometimes you need to have sensitivity to the things that other people have experienced and other people are, are, are going through. And it is not loving to constantly be speaking of yourself or talking about, uh, about yourself. I, I tell the story, there was a person, uh, a, a local person who... Uh, uh, was on a radio show here lo in, uh, in, in Grand Rapids. They were pastor of a, of, a, of a church. They did other ministry things. But the most interesting thing to me about what this guy was that we have known each other for well over 20 years. We were in college classes together. We have done ministry things together many times. We have spent time together. But the thing about this gentleman is that each time I meet him, he introduces himself to me. And the, the reason I've always believed that he introduces himself to me was that, that in his head there's no room to learn other people's names because it would take time from thinking about him himself. He is honestly one of the most boastful people I, I've ever met. He has spent a good portion of his time. We were used to... Uh, 
we used to frequent the same sort of coffee shop and it would be sort of regular that he would be in there with, with people and um, under the guise of explaining his ministry, it would be a boast fest about, about himself. And I don't think that we have a lot of that, but I, I'm bringing up an extreme example just to say that love does not spend it all of its time talking about itself, right? And so if you're going to be loving, you need to learn to spend time uh, not thinking only about you. And you need to learn to spend time hearing about others. And so uh, love is not arrogant. That builds on, on the same one. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. And it does not keep records of wrong. So I want to sort of take those as a, as a group. They mean what, they, what you think they mean. Um, but I want to hit on in verse 5, is not rude, it is not self-seeking. Because even though that appears in the list, that's actually the key to the passage, right? The definition of love and the definition of the way love should function and the way we should care for each other is this, is that what you will discover is that love doesn't seek itself. That is the most difficult aspect of love in general. And that is the place where it is most different from our culture in general. I said to you earlier that, that Hollywood talks to us about love and Hollywood shows us movies about love or TV shows about love. And, and the idea is, is that everybody should want to be in love and being in love is defined as this nebulous, emotional, ushy-gushy sort of, sort of feeling. And the idea is, is that what you need uh, is, is to be in love because that will fulfill you. And so there is a self-seeking nature. If you think about every movie you've ever seen about love uh, in general, there is this concept of mutual self-fulfillment. If I could just be in love and get someone to love me back, then we would be mutually self-fulfilled. Then I would be happy, they would be happy, and everything would be perfect. And that seems perfectly logical, and yet it is not the definition that Paul gives of love when he says to the Corinthians that it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not irritable. The idea of all of these definitions of love is wrapped up in this, is that love is not predominantly about how I get my needs met. Neither is love in this passage, neither is the idea that if you Give love, you will get love, and there will be a mutual thing and mutual fulfillment. Also not in the passage. In fact, as I think about love and the way love functions in the passage, when I think about the way love should function in, in Scripture, I do believe that you should seek to love, but I am not convinced at all that you will find from love the kind of emotional fulfillment that has been shown us in Hollywood. And perhaps you will, um, perhaps you will, and I am not being negative on those things. All I'm saying is, is this, is that it seems to me that the motivation to love in, in Hollywood, the motivation to love in our books, the motivation to love in our culture is based 100% on this concept that if you love, there will be a mutuality. You give love to receive love. Paul does not make that point in the passage. In fact, he's making sort of the opposite because giving love to receive love is a self-seeking action. In the passage, he says love's not self-seeking. It's not rude. It's not irritable. It means exactly what you think it means. Uh, it is easy on the emotional level, and this is simply talking about, uh, about mutuality. If love is viewed in, in the terms of mutuality, I give you love, you give me love, we each get mutually fulfilled, and it's wonderful, then, then we're going to have a big problem with, with this reality because it is easy to be irritated by others. If you're saying, no, I don't see that, I don't find it easy to be irritated by others, bless you, you are so much holier than I am. 
But I find it easy to be irritated by others. I can be irritated by almost anything, but as I go through my day, I find that there are times when I just find others irritating. People that I do genuinely love and love uh, uh, in, in, in by any sort of definition, the people that I do, they still irritate me. They still do things that bother me. They still do things that, that are, that are, uh, that are, uh, 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 bothersome. We'll, we'll just use that term, bothersome. And I'm thinking of this idea of the word irritant, right? It's just constantly there. And it feels like it's building and it feels like it's getting worse and it feels like all that's happening. And this goes back to the first part. Love is patient, right? Love doesn't blurt. The easiest thing to do when someone irritates us is blurt out, knock it off. You're so irritating, right? I'm going to suggest to you that that is not the most loving of things to, to, to say. Um, as a parent, there are times where it's completely appropriate to say, knock it off. But our heart, our heart disposition should be this, is that in love, we're not to be irritable. Churches are full of people that are irritable. Which is interesting. Because I do think that love is is the central and often forgotten command or the the, 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 the the chief way that a person displays that they're a follower of Jesus is that they, they display love, that they are loving. And yet yet maybe it's just because we're one of few places left in, in culture where people gr- gather and group together, but churches are full of irritable people, people who are always bothered by somebody else or something else. Well, those people did that, or they did this, or can you believe that, or did you see that? And, and, um, and so and we live in a social media culture right now, and I feel like, like the social media culture adds to our irritableness. Well, I'm irritated. Let me take to the, to the, to the internet and subtweet that. Um, Subtweet, as a parenthesis means, let me write uh, some sort of status that's attacking a group of people, but I won't say their name. Let me be passive aggressive, and it's easy to do, right? It's so simple. It's at our at our fingertips, and 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 I feel like we live in an irritable time. But I would suggest this: that the church ought not to be the most irritable place on earth. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. Keeps no record of wrongs, right? It would be easy to go, well, that person did me wrong this way, and I'll forgive them, but I won't forget that. And so we might forgive them, but we keep track of that wrong. And then the next time they do something that we view as wrong, we keep track of that. And then the next time that they do something that we perceive as wrong, we keep track of that. So we might forgive them the first time, but what we're doing is we're keeping a record or we're essentially amassing evidence against them so that we can, we can act as a lawyer and a judge in our, in our own internal case to make, a, to make an argument with ourselves for why we're not responsible for loving that person. Well, I would love them. I wouldn't be irritable with them, but did you see what they did? Did you see how they acted? Did you see how they are? By the way, this passage is intended to build perfectly upon itself. So when Paul talks about not being rude, not being irritable, and not keeping a record of wrongs, it goes back to when he says love is not arrogant or boastful. Because the reason we start to think about what other people did and we focus on what other people do is because we are not able, because of our own arrogance, to stop and take a look at what we do. And every time when I hear long descriptors of other people's problems, or when I catch myself making long descriptors of other people's problems and what other people have done and why I'm angry at them and why they shouldn't have or why did they, the reality is I am just emphasizing that I have not yet learned to not be arrogant. I have not yet learned to not be irritable. Because when I live in a they world, focusing on what they do or what that person does, it is an example that I have not yet learned to love. It is not easy to not keep a record of wrongs. It is not easy in life to watch a person do something and let, if we take it out of the church realm and take it into real life, if you've ever been wronged or hurt or anyone's ever transgressed your trust, 
It is not easy then to not keep a record of the fact that they've transgressed your trust. And then you're trying to be in a relationship and they're saying, well, do you trust me or allow me uh, to do this or can I do this? And you're thinking the whole time. But don't you realize what you did? Don't you realize how you acted? Don't you realize how you've been? And so we live in this constant internal argument where, again, we're playing lawyer and we're trying to use our own protectionistic methods, our own heart to be judged. And so that person wronged me. That person did it. And I want to trust them, but can I trust them? The reality of this passage is this, is that it is not interested in the kind of mutuality that we see in our culture. And in our culture where we look for mutuality when showing love, it is easy for us to say, well, they did this. How can I trust them again? They will just hurt me again. That may be a perfectly logical and a perfectly true statement, but it is not a description of the way biblical love seems to function in, in, in this passage. It doesn't keep a record of, of wrongs. It can be difficult in your marriages, in your parenting, in your church life, in every bit of you to not have a list of wrongs that people have committed against you. And your list of wrongs may be perfectly legitimate, you go, that, that is, that's legitimate. That happened. And, you, and, and, and your, your emotional struggle, how do I learn to deal with this again? How do I, might be perfectly legitimate. What does not seem to be legitimate for Paul is the idea that you are freed from being loving towards the person who wronged you. In fact, he says it's not keeping a record. Remember elsewhere in scripture it says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? Right? See, we're, we're Jesus followers, and we'll get into this in a minute, but we're Jesus followers, and we're called to follow him and not keeping a record of wrongs. Some of us have become so adept and we've become hurt by other situations in life and other things in life that we, we just naturally keep a record of, of wrongs because we're trying to protect ourselves and we're trying to keep it and we're convinced that everyone is out to, to hurt us. And so we, we, we've grown accustomed to keeping record of wrongs so that we can emotionally protect ourselves and so that we can say, see, they did it again. I told you those people or that person or him or her. We're adept at doing it, but it doesn't free us from the biblical command to not do it. Just because we're good at a particular sin doesn't mean that we should continue to walk in it. Verse 6, love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It's a difficult one too, and it's sort of a, sort of a switch up, but essentially what it's saying is, is that if you love someone and they continue to walk in, in sin, you don't celebrate their sinfulness. You don't walk with them in their, their, their sinfulness. You love them, but it's not loving. It's not loving to continue to allow them to, to walk in unrighteousness. This goes back to chapter 5 in, in 1 Corinthians. There's a man who's in the congregation who's, who's dating his, his stepmother. He's essentially taken his, his, his father's wife. And so the church was sort of celebrating it. They thought they were cosmopolitan. They thought they were, they were developed and they were allowing it to go on. And so Paul says, but love doesn't find joy in unrighteousness, but rather it rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in the, in the right thing. If we love one another, we also want what is best and what is right and what is good for one another. And so we don't, we don't rejoice in unrighteousness. We don't find joy in it. We don't celebrate it. We don't, we don't uh, ignore it. But it rejoices in the truth. It says this, and it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. 
the reality is, is that sometimes it would be easiest to give up, right? It'd be easiest to give up. That's why divorce rates are through the, through the roof, right? That's why evangelicals, uh, Jesus followers, have, have lower, lower divorce rates than the, than the general culture, but not low enough, right? We're still divorcing at a very high rate because it's easy to give up. It's why we have church splits. It's why we have discord. It's easy to give up. It's why people walk away from friendships and relationships. It's why they, why they walk away from, from all kinds of things because it's easy to give up. But the love found here says, is this. It says it bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Here's the... Here's the the bedrock idea here. The love that we're called to, the love that you and I are called to, to demonstrate and to display to one another is based in in the cross. If you want to know what love is, if you want to see love most clearly defined, it's defined in the actions and activities of Jesus at the cross. Right? We, we quote this verse a lot, but I, I'll never stop quoting it. it says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so that is a, a theological description of a, of, a, of a physical reality, which is this, is that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, who was God uh, before time began, became a human. He became incarnate. He became a man. He lived exactly as we did. He was tempted as we were. He struggled as we do. He went through the hurts and pains that we have as a human, and yet he did not sin. Therefore, he was not under the wrath of God. He, there, was, there was no reason for a man such as this to be punished. There was no reason for a man like this to be hurt. And yet Jesus both in historical reality and in implications, was punished by being put to death on a cross. The, Roman, uh, the, the, the way the Romans put people to death. So his hands and his feet are nailed to a cross. He's beaten uh, literally within an inch of his, of, of his life. They put a crown of thorns on him. They strip him naked. They spit on him. They torture him and they kill him on a cross. If you're looking, though, for a description of what love is, it doesn't seem like it, and it's not romantic like Hollywood, but that's your description of what love is. Every description, every understanding of what love is must begin at the cross. If you want to love, learn who Jesus is. If you want to love, learn what Jesus did. And understand this, that the, that the example of love we have and why Paul is talking like he, he's talking is that Paul clearly understands what Jesus has done for us. He understands how Jesus has loved us. And because Jesus has loved us in this way, he calls us to love others as Jesus would. So how did Jesus love you? He loved you by never sinning on your behalf. How did Jesus love you? He loved you by being beaten on your behalf. How did Jesus love you? He loved you by being spit on on your behalf. How did Jesus love you? He loved you by being mocked on your behalf. How did Jesus love you? He loved you by being nailed to a cross on your behalf. How did Jesus love you? He loved you by dying on your behalf. The question is, what then did Jesus receive from that? Where is the mutuality? I am here to tell you there was no mutuality in that. You had nothing to offer Jesus for his death on the cross. You had nothing to give Jesus for his beatings. You had nothing nothing to trade with Jesus for the mockery. You had nothing about you that could earn even a modicum of the love that was contained in each drop of blood that he shed. You gave nothing to Jesus. Jesus gave love to you. There is your example of what love is. And that is at the center of this passage so that when it says love is patient, consider how Jesus was patient with you. We used to sing uh, in the church I grew up in uh, a song that contained the line, you could have called down 10,000 angels 
right? Talking about God could have destroyed us through, through the calling down of angels, or he could have been rescued from the cross by the calling down of angels, but he did not. Jesus was patient with you, Patient in the traditional sense and patient in this sense is that there is truth that you needed to hear, but the word of the Lord was not spoken because he could have blurted words of destruction and you would have been done and you would have deserved it. But Jesus, consider what is patience? How was Jesus patient at the cross? What is kindness? How was Jesus kind on the cross? Was love envious? What had Jesus to envy? He was God. Was love boastful? Jesus had every right to boast. I say again, he was God. Jesus was not arrogant. Philippians says this, who being, very, who being in very nature, God did not consider equality something that he had with God, something that he had to grasp after. He didn't have to. He was God. It is not irritable. You and I should think I was going to say our lucky stars, but what a foolish thing to say in the church and with this reference. You and I should hit our knees and praise Jesus daily that he is not irritable towards us. If you think that you have meant an irritating person in church, you need to go home, spend a few minutes alone, and ask Jesus exactly how irritating he, who is sinless, who is perfect, who is righteous, ask him how irritating he might find you. We are irritating and with, irritated with one another all the time. And we're just a bunch of sinners passing around our own sinfulness. Do you think maybe Jesus would have had right to be irritable with us? Thank Jesus that he was not. He kept no record of wrongs. I said it earlier. Thank you, O Lord, that you keep no record of wrongs. If you kept record of wrongs, who could stand? The answer is no one. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. He found no joy in unrighteousness and to rescue you from your sinful behavior and for your sinful, uh, your, your sinful heart and, and your sinful nature. He died to rescue you. It bears all things. Jesus bore a cross. It believed all things. Jesus did not give up on you, but rather he chose to rescue you. It hopes all things. In this case, Jesus does not have to hope in the sense, but it means hope is a confident expectation. Our hope is in the hope of glory, the, the living Savior. It endures all things. What did it endure? It endured the cross. And so what is your example of what it means to love? The cross of Jesus Christ is your example of what it means to love. And so in our culture, we think of love as mutuality. In our churches, we have stopped using the term very much, love one another, and we've started to use the term community. And I do believe in community, but the interesting thing about seeking community with other believers is that it's based in mutuality, right? We get into huddles and we mutually encourage each other. We get into larger groups and we, there's mutuality. And I believe in community, but community is different than love one another. Because the reality is this, is that love is not always mutual. And because love is not mutual, does not mean that you are not still commanded to do it. It does not mean that you are not commanded to give it. Love is not a mushy-cushy feeling, but it is a verb-action word telling how believers behave, people who love Jesus behave. It is difficult to be patient. It is difficult to be kind. It is difficult to not envy. Right? Sometimes you're in situations where, where, where your home life or your life other, elsewhere is going horrifically, and you start to envy other people's homes. Lack of love can cause all kinds of things. Here is what I'm convinced of, though. Is that the call to love is at the center of what it means to follow Jesus. It is not easy to make a decision to say, I'm going to love and I don't know that if I'm, if I'm ever going to receive this love in return. It is difficult to make a decision that says I'm going to love. And ultimately this love might hurt me. It is not easy to make a decision that says, yeah, I will, I will love him. Though he hurts me. Though he hates me. Not, um, 
just as a parenthesis, I'm not talking about a abusive situations, that kind of thing. I'm, so um, I don't want you to hear me say to stay in, in abuse, but I do want you to hear me say this. I've discovered this week that to love is a command and the mutuality of receiving love back is not a promise. And it is sometimes hard to walk in that place where you go, man, haven't I given you everything? Didn't I, didn't I love you? Didn't I give you this? Didn't I give you that? Didn't I give you me? And to watch that, that not be returned can be difficult. That can hurt. And yet, the call of a believer, the call of someone who follows Jesus is to love. Right? Like, I don't see the thing, love, and you get it back. It's not a promise. I don't know that love's even a good investment account, right? Like if you invest in it, it's going to return. Like, like I, I just, I live life and I read scripture and I realize this, is that we love as followers of Jesus because it is the right thing to do. Not because it feels good, not because it doesn't hurt, not because it's easy, not because they love us back, not because someday it'll all make sense and it'll all be worth it. There's a sense in which Christ comes in glory that'll be true, but in this lifetime, I just don't know that those promises of love will ever come to fruition, but I am convinced of this, that the call to love is right there in the middle of 1 Corinthians because it is how Jesus' followers are called to behave. So, In, in the church, what is, would it mean to, to like love one another, like really love one another? Well, it means forgetting about ourselves, and that's the most difficult thing because we want mutuality. We want recognition. We want all of those, those, sorts, of, that, those sorts of things. And so um, in a perfect world, all of those things should be given. But the reality is, is that Jesus hasn't returned yet, and this world's not perfect. So sometimes things just stink. Right? Sometimes the person you sit next to in, in church or, or the person you, you talk to, that person's going to fail you. You find the verse where, where it says, hey, if that person fails you, 1 Corinthians 13 doesn't apply, then I'd love to look at it. Sometimes they're going to hurt you. If you can find me a verse that says where they hurt you, it doesn't apply, let's look at it. Sometimes it's going to be worse. Sometimes they're going to be cruel and they're going to be terrible and they're going to be awful. And it would be easy then just to go, well, they're jerks, I hate them. And even then, Scripture calls us to love. It calls us to love. It calls us to love. In your relationships at home, you know this, husbands, wives, right? It's easy to be irritable. It's easy to be bothered. It's easy to be uh, uh, disgusted. It's easy to be upset. It's easy to feel like you're doing more than the other person or, or pulling more of the, of the weight. It's easy. But loving one another, that's hard. And it's at the center of the call of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you want a Jesus-centered home, you're called to love one another. Even when it's difficult. Even when you feel like it's not reciprocal even when you feel like it's not equal, even when you feel like it's not mutual, even when you feel like your life's never going to be at the center of a romantic movie on Lifetime Network, even when all of those things happen, you're called to love one another. And love doesn't give up, and love doesn't walk away. I'm the product of parents who have been married for, for over 50 years. Uh, I have sisters who have been married uh, close to 30 years. I Probably over 30 years at this point. Uh, we've been married over 20-some uh, years. 
Uh, and I'm, I'm the youngest of five, and all of us have been, been married over 20 years. And people go, so what's, what's the great marriage secret? There really isn't one, but here's, here's one of the things we knew entering into marriage was this, is that divorce was not an option. Giving up was not an option. And so we had somehow learned one of the important parts of love in 1 Corinthians through, through the home life. And so I would say this to you, you can be assured that I am no less irritating than any man who has ever been divorced. I'm no less annoying than any man who's ever been divorced. I'm no less sinful than any man who's ever been divorced. I am no less of anything than any woman has ever walked away from. That is a reality. And yet I have been married coming up on 22 years because my wife has committed in a 1 Corinthians 13 way to love me and stick with me. And in your home, I want to challenge you. Stay. Fight. Work. Love. Don't be irritable. Don't be rude. Don't walk away. Don't keep a record of wrongs. Don't be adding, adding to the list. But always hope. Always hope. The scariest thing in life for me right now is this reality of, of children, and that's always been scary. Right? We growing up in, in, in the Goblin Heights neighborhood, I have boys. Uh, we do not have serious violence problems, but we do have gangs, and that's always been sort of scary to me. Like, what happens when my child gets to that age? That's been scary. You never know. You're trying to raise your children in the faith, and you're like, are they internalizing it? Are they getting it? Are they following Jesus? Are they working with Jesus? And that's always been, been scary. And then we did that thing that sometimes is, um, sometimes is glorified as though the people who do it are, are heroes and as if it's, it's a good story, but we did that thing where we adopted. And I don't want to go deep into that, but I, I just want to say this, is that what I've been learning is that the act of adoption is an act of obedience and an act of love that you do, and it is not always mutual. You hope for mutuality, but it is uh, adoption is, is a loving act of war where you are warring against backgrounds and you're warring against struggles and you're warring against traumas and you're warring against everything that that child had ever gone through in the life that they went that they had before they came into your home. And so, oftentimes, you're getting a child who's experienced so much trauma, so much anger, so much angst, so much neglect, so much abuse that you bring them into your home and you start to display love to them. And the reality is is that they can't even perceive that love accurately. At, uh, at any time. They can't even feel it. And so the reality is, is that you're trying to love someone that someone else has not loved and is already damaged and already hurt. And so what I have discovered and what I know is this, is I believe this. I will say to you that adoption is the right thing to do. Adoption is a holy thing to do. Adoption is a good thing to do. But adoption is a loving act of obedience. It is not a way to, to, to fill your need for mutuality and return to love. And that is a reality that, 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 I'm, that I'm walking through. And I'm not, not trying to give you a, a negative view on, uh, on things, but I would just like you to hear this, is that this brought this passage home to me this, this week, is that, is that because of the sinfulness of the world, somebody else took a child and for the first seven years of their life broke them. For the first seven years of their life ignored them. For the first seven years of their life did not love them. And so that when you come along and, and, and we sometimes have these, these grandiose or grand ideas of, uh, of, uh, of being heroic, when you come along and you're the hero and you go, come into my home, my love will fix you. What I have discovered is that my love does not have the ability to heal. My love does not have the ability to fix. My, my love does not have the ability to make things new. Jesus has that ability, but I will tell you this, I do not. I don't have that ability. And so we have walked through this week, this, this week, and it's been longer than this week. It came to the head this week. We've walked through this struggle and we've walked through this hurt. And as, I, as I've walked through it, this reality came to me and this question comes to me. Do I choose to love or do I choose to disconnect? And that seems like an awful thing to say, but when you're staring down some of the struggle and you're staring down some of the hurt, you go, do I choose to love or do I choose to disconnect? Because I will tell you this, the easiest thing to do would be to say, I did not really create this problem. I did the best I could. What am I getting out of this? I'm going to disconnect.
And yet, who am I but in a messed up adopted child of the King of Kings? Right? I have, a, I have an earthly father. Thank goodness he was good. But I also have a heavenly father who chose me, who loves me, who adopts me, who declares me his own. How much mutuality do you think my heavenly father's ever gotten from me? Like, like lifetime, if I'm just being honest about me, what have I really given to him? So what this brought home to me is this reality. It's that love's either the right thing to do because it's the right thing to do because Jesus said to and this book is true and right. Or it's not. So to decide. My decision is this. I'm the adopted son of the God most high. I'm a rebel to his cause. I'm a hater of his ways. Though he loves me, though he gifts me, though he cares for me, I wake up every morning and I sin against him. Though I could walk with him, I often don't. Though I could talk with him, I often don't. Though I could grow in him, I often don't. Though I should walk with him, I often walk away. Even though he has loved me, he's cared for me, he's promised me all these things, I have been a rebel. And yet his love for me is not voidable. His love for me is not cancelable. His love for me is not, thank goodness, based in me. It's not. He loves me because it's the right thing to do. Because he said so. So I've walked through that this, this week. And it's brought home this reality. that we all think ourselves much greater than we are. We're all arrogant. We're all irritable. We're all keeping records of wrongs. And the reality is, is that we're all a bunch of broken people. And at the end of the day, if a loving God can love me, though he's perfect, and I'm so not, who am I to refuse to love anybody? Who am I to refuse to love you? Who am I to refuse to love people who, who hurt me? Didn't I hurt the Father? Who am I to refuse to love those who in my head I think don't deserve it? What do I deserve? If there's one thing I know, it's this. It's that I'm called to love because the Bible says so. And it's the center of our call and it's at the center of our, our, our Christian activity. And I don't know how that ends for any of us in terms of mutuality. But I know that Jesus loved me. And if Jesus loved me, then I need to love others. And if Jesus loves you, you need to love others. That's our call. May we do it. Pray with me.